0: Hello everybody, welcome to this episode of the Once Bitten Podcast. Joining me on this rip is Freddie New. He set up the Bitcoin Policy Institute in the UK, following the lead from Bitcoin Policy Institute that was set up in the US. Freddie has such an interesting background, and we do get into some of the stories of where he was brought up around the world, and... The separate reasons why he and his family had to flee his home and the way in which they fled, uh, all incredible stories and and like this, these traumatic experiences obviously shape a person's life and, and how it shaped Freddie's life and what pushed him into going into law and what pushed him into finding Bitcoin. It all ties together. All of these things, they all have a reason and you will all come to the same realization through your own Bitcoin rabbit hole. Something happened in your past that primed you for finding Bitcoin. And the sooner we find it, the better, obviously, but the more we can educate people about it, that's even huger and that's what Freddie is here to do with the bitcoin policy institute trying to educate people who are making policies ill-advised policies around bitcoin and its use and its availability to those people in the uk where he lives huge thanks to Freddie for all of his work and for coming on the show i hope you guys are going to enjoy this one don't forget to reach out to Freddie afterwards and at time of Release. I'm actually going to be seeing Freddy tomorrow at a Bitcoin meetup in Surrey, which I'm looking forward to see the whole Bitcoin Policy Institute team there and uh, the big, the bridge to Bitcoin guys as well. Now, before we get into the show, if you're new to stacking Bitcoin, please make sure you find Bitcoin-only companies near you, and please lean on them for their educational resources about Bitcoin and only Bitcoin. Park all of the other crypto bullshit. You don't need to know about it. Focus your laser eyes onto Bitcoin. In the US, you can use Swan Bitcoin. They've been around for a long time now. They have a white glove service. They are gonna be on the end of the phone to you to speak directly about your Bitcoin journey. In uh, Europe, we have Relay R-E-L-A-I dot Give the guys a shout. You can download the app and be stacking up to 1,000 Swiss or equivalent under two minutes and they are lightning enabled as well for those advanced users. If you want to up your privacy, stack with Hoddle. Hoddle. that's no KYC, global peer-to-peer trading platform. Hit the link in the show notes. You'll save on commissions. Use wasabiwallet.io. Head over there, create yourself a wallet, pull some Bitcoin off of one of the apps or exchanges, and it's going to do an automatic coin join for you, breaking that identity. This is something a lot of people are looking into. You should too mempool.space is the place to go to go and check the transactions on the mempool before you make these uh, transactions and move your bitcoin around and of course bitbox02 is the best place to go for your gold storage hit the link in the show notes to all of these places bitbox use the code bitten for a five percent discount get across to madeira first of the third of march come see us at the conference and again use that code bitten here's freddy freddy great to see you how you doing very good,
1: thank you. Great to see you too, and thanks for having me on.
0: No problem. Enjoy your Christmas.
1: Yeah, yeah, to relatively quiet, uh, but very nice. How about you guys? You were in France, is that right? Yeah, pretty quiet
0: here. Uh we're we're one down, she's off traveling around uh, Southeast Asia with some friends, so there's only the five of us. But uh pretty pretty chill, wasn't it? Yeah. First time. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Right, so Lauren uh, is here to ask the first question. Late change of plan. We didn't think you we were going to make it, did we? But she is here, so she can fire away with the first question. Awesome.
2: What is the Bitcoin Policy Institute?
1: Okay, great question. Um, so Bitcoin Policy Institutes—that's um, actually the the official name of the the American body. So they're the they're the people who gave us uh, our inspiration. Um, So the Bitcoin Policy UK uh, is a a lobby and advocacy group. We're a not-for-profit that was set up last year, and actually your dad's an advisor. So thank you, you, Dan. (laughs) Um, So what we wanted to do was to try and give as much good and correct and sensible Bitcoin education to politicians, regulators, and the general public in the UK because we had all come together from various different walks of life and... uh, different parts of Bitcoin, so to speak. And I think each of us who make up the team had found that there was a huge lack of understanding and comprehension about Bitcoin. And particularly as we'll probably go on to discuss, there's a fundamental misunderstanding, I think, among the people who make decisions and who write laws and write regulation, that Bitcoin is the same as crypto in general. Um, Bitcoin is obviously a, a cryptographically and secured protocol but it has been muddied by confusion with a lot of the rubbish. And I won't use the normal offensive term that we might might currently use, um, <laughs> but I'm sure you've heard it before. Mm. Yeah. So that, that's, that's what we've been set to do. And uh, hopefully we'll go on actually to discuss that in a bit more detail during the whole of the call.
0: Well, good question. Do you understand what it is now? Yep. <laughs> do, do you pretty use a, a word there um lobby a lobby group do, do you understand what that means
2: <laughs> not really
1: no. okay what, ha- think, yeah yeah how would you explain that freddie uh well it depends how geeky you want to get so it actually the, the history of the word actually comes from some of the big calls outside the, the debating chamber in parliament which were the, which are called lobbies and Various people who had different interests would try and grab hold of MPs and politicians and members of the House of Lords when they were coming out of the debating chamber and basically try to get their point of view across. And so that activity became known as lobbying, taken from the space in which it often happened, the lobby. Um, Lobbying nowadays is more traditionally seen as a particular party or particular group of people with with a particular interest trying to give information about the thing they're interested in to people who might be writing laws or regulations or making decisions.
0: It's definitely more of a negative kind of connotation nowadays uh, as seen in, in politics, I would say.
1: Yeah, particularly in the US, the, the US lobbying industry is very, very different from the UK. So just by by way of contrast, being, you, you may have heard of it like the big tobacco lobby uh, or, or big oil. These are very, very well-funded uh, industry-led groups uh, who are able to effectively to sway politicians' decisions uh, in in some cases in m- maybe ways that might raise the eyebrow of the ordinary person, uh, such as by uh, you know making gen- generous contributions to campaign finance and so on. Um, in the UK, a lot of lobbying is actually um, done done for free. So all of the people in Bitcoin Policy UK are volunteers, and uh, we don't have any outside uh, funding or sponsorship. Um, and actually, the first lobby group I worked with was a uh, sort of a, a cultural one involved in uh, in museum work twenty years ago or so, and um, that was also a not for profit, and uh, was not very well funded at all. And I, I feel embarrassed sometimes when I look back and remember how how budget some of the things that we did were. Um, yeah, but the, the, you're your right, identity. The connotations are probably negative, but I'd say that they are arguably a lot worse in the US because you have these enormously well-funded bodies that are often deeply involved in, bluntly, getting people elected. Mm
0: -hmm. Deeply involved in government, yeah, across the board, across both parties as well. There's definitely, yeah, yeah, a lot more weirdness going on uh, across the pond when it comes to uh, politics and and lobby groups and, well... The Cantillon effect is at play as well, as we know.
1: Uh, yes. <laughs> there's, right. there's a funny stat, isn't there? Looking at Elizabeth Warren's salary Oops. and her net worth. You know, what's her salary? So I'm like, don't quote me on this, but it's in the region of 150k a year, and her net worth is now 74000000 Um, million. She's got to be a really, really good investor to have...
0: Best trader that ever lived. Best trader yeah, yeah, yeah. ever. I mean, I don't know when she gets to sleep. Do her day job and keep up with those uh, with those markets and uh, the, the violent swings that she must be managing. Probably a, a mm. far better trader than uh, than anyone, even Warren Buffett, even uh, probably, Benjamin. Probably, Gray. if you look um, at the stats.
1: Hats off to you, Liz. Yeah, <laughs> I'm sure. I'm sure someone's done it, but it would be very funny to look at the numbers if they haven't.
0: Yeah, I mean, it's just
1: it's not. <sighs> It's a clown role.
0: Okay, thanks for your question. Yes, thank you.
2: Thank you for answering. Hey. Bye-bye. Thank Thank you. you. No,
1: no, really nice to see you. I I didn't know we were going to get to have a Lauren question, but thank you very much. Yeah, no problem. (laughs) Take
0: care. Right, mate. So I guess we should uh, try and find out a little bit more before we delve into the Bitcoin Policy Institute UK uh, and the, the formation of that and the reasoning for that let's let's try and find out a little bit more about yourself and what's led you to this path. Obviously, we've all gone on our own little rabbit hole journeys and something has led us to this particular point in time where we feel uh, overwhelmed to to do something, right? To, to bring our skill set and set something up, start a project, start a podcast, write a book, write an article, whatever it is, right? Somebody feels that feeling and they go for it. So what was going on? With with you, mate. Growing up, where 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 were you originally
1: growing up, and what's led you to this to this point? Uh, cool. So I had a bit of a peripatetic childhood. So um, originally born born in the UK, but left when I was quite young. Um, my dad worked for the British Council back then, and at, when I was about five, we moved to the Middle East. Uh, so his his posting then was to Damascus. Um, so he spent about two years in Syria as a kid. Uh, went to the American school there in Damascus. Um, had to leave very, very abruptly. I don't, I don't know if you, I don't know if we've chatted about the story. So, um, we were there originally on a four-year posting, and um, while we were there, diplomatic relations deteriorated between um, Syria and the UK. Uh, there was a chap called Hindawi who tried to bomb a plane, uh, which had a lot of British citizens on it. Uh, thankfully, the the bomb was found. No one was hurt. Uh, but that precipitated a complete breakdown of relations between Syria and, and the UK. And What, what year was
0: that? Can you refresh my memory?
1: I think 86, late 86, 87. So we, we were in France, Christmas 87. So it must have been during 86. Right. Um. So... I, sorry I haven't I haven't read the wiki page for a while but um th- th- those those are the broad details. <laughs> yeah, um I was obviously too young at the time I was about seven at the and I, I didn't really know what was going on what well, um what I do remember was that all of the embassy people that we were good friends with were packing up and getting out um what we didn't know was that the eviction order from Assad, so the current president Assad's father uh, included the cultural people so the the British council wasn't part of the embassy we were affiliated with them but not and we, we did a lot of work with them but we weren't officially diplomats uh, so we thought you know we're, we're the we're the cultural team we do scholarships and stuff like that and uh and then uh, i remember a knock at the door one 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 evening and uh someone from the embassy was there my parents rushed and rushed to answer it and we are told we've got 48 hours to leave the country um we were included but no one had told us uh, and then that was all uh, quite crazy. We had soldiers in the garden keeping guards, making sure we weren't leaving the house. My parents stayed up for forty-eight hours, packed every single thing we owned, uh, and then we were escorted to the coast um, by an armed guard and put on the boat. <laughs> filmed being put in the boat by the by the news stations and uh, kicked out of the country as undesirables. No. Um Yeah, so that that was (laughs) that. So yeah.
0: Did you Um, did you have any brothers and sisters? Was it just you?
1: Uh just me and my sister at the time. Uh my my younger two brothers and sisters were born later. Um actually when we were when we were in Africa.
0: Man. And so you you're seven. That that must have you you can't imagine the kind of uh psychological processing that goes on in a seven-year-old's mind, right? When when you look back and it and like you, you see your parents in panic mode, trying to get everything packed up. There's guns on people's shoulders, walking around the garden. Like it, it it's madness. How do you process that?
1: Yeah, I, I suppose you no, know, the previous two years have been better preparation than you might have imagined. So uh obviously we we were highly aware that Syria was not London. And we knew about the Muhabarat, the secret police, and you had to be very careful about what you said and did and how you behaved. So my, my parents were training us from quite a young age in in how to behave properly in a situation that might be relatively hostile. Although I have to say that at the time, Syria was a genuinely lovely place. We, a, I've got very, very fond memories. And We did a lot of traveling around the country. We went to um very ancient rock, rock village called Malula, another wonderful village called Sednaya, very very ancient churches there it was, it was such a fascinating place to see at such a young age you know because there's, there's so much history there. you know the, the the three religions you know obviously syria is largely christian and um and muslim but malula for example they still spoke aramaic which was the ancient language that christ himself spoke that's one of the few places on earth where it's still spoken um that was all that was all absolutely fascinating um the actual process of leaving. What, what I find, I mean, I've got, obviously got a seven-year-old's perspective on it, but what I find really sad is that there wasn't really there wasn't much of an opportunity to say goodbye to a lot of my friends. Um, so there were a lot of Syrian kids at at the American school. I can still remember a bunch of their names. Uh, one thing, I, I mean, this sounds silly, but uh, a lot of my class uh, had written me good luck and goodbye notes, and. When we had to leave, my parents picked me up from the school and we went straight from, from the school. Um, we'd been allowed to go to school for the final, uh, final two days. Um and uh they they the the escort got into the school, grabbed us, and then then off we went to, to to the coast. Um I left all those notes in my desk. Hmm. So I um I, I've always always rather regretted that
0: yeah man that's crazy so <laughs> where was that where did you go after that it sounds like france for a, a small stint
1: yeah yeah exactly so we were in france for what well, my dad was halfway through his poaching so they didn't really have anywhere to send him at the time so <laughs> he, he was sort of given three months three months leave and uh we took a small cottage in france so we we crossed the mediterranean on a ferry and then um our, our car was on the ferry with us and then we drove through North Italy into France, um, and lived near Tours in a village called Mont for, for a few months, uh, which was which was nice. I didn't speak any French when I arrived. I spoke more when I left. Uh, and then back to the UK for a short while for the next place which was to Zimbabwe.
0: What was your dad's role again? Sorry, exactly.
1: Uh, so the British Council, um, they... I think in a line, what they do is they represent British culture abroad. So in Syria, he was arranging a lot of scholarships for uh, Syrian students to come to UK universities, and also for um, libraries to be opened. In they they ran the library in Damascus, for example, um, and they would bring out uh, various different performers. So uh, I remember seeing *Midsummer Night's Dream* in in Syria. Edward Woodward, I think, was was starring in that. Uh, they brought out English folk, uh, they brought out a um another band called Pie Wacket. I don't know if they're still going. i was meant to try and dig them up. Um, and they go around and um these people they perform in like fantastic, like there's a Roman amphitheatre in, I think it's Fosra. Gosh, my memory's terrible now. Mine it was a long time ago. Um yeah, so the, the idea is that you um you foster relations between countries culturally. Um and uh, I remember one one thing he was doing was providing lots and lots of Shakespeare videos on VHS, or it might even be Betamax at the time, uh, to the daughter of um, someone who's very high up in the asset government. And he would be taken in the car with a blindfold on to their house to, to <laughs> deliver these these videos, and and then be on hand in case you needed any um, any questions answered. Wow,
0: interesting, mate. Okay, so Zimbabwe. And I remember watching uh, your interview with Peter and you've got a pretty crazy story yeah. about what went down in Zimbabwe as well.
1: <laughs> yeah. I've, I've realised a lot, a lot of these stories are about us fleeing from, from one place. <laughs> <or another. laughs> so, um, uh, yeah, obviously, Syria was a kind of forced uh, forced flight, um, Zimbabwe less so, uh, again, I have to say, when when we lived there, Zim was a great, great country to, to grow up in. Um, so just to put in a bit of historical context for 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 people who might might not be aware, there there was a lengthy period um, of uh, the, the liberation war, effectively against um, the successors really to the colonial government. So uh, Ian Smith, who was the prime minister of, of Southern Rhodesia, he unilaterally declared independence from from the British Empire uh, in. The late 60s, late 60s or early 70s. That's known as UDI, Unilateral Declaration of Independence. So the government that the Freedom Fighters were actually fighting against at the time wasn't actually the colonial government, but its successor. Um, so the British never really recognized Ian smith's government, and the Ian smith's government was then fighting a very long, drawn out guerrilla war against the freedom fighters who were trying to you know, effectively. Take take back their country, bluntly. Uh, But that was all uh, that was all wrapped up in full independence, both from the British Empire and from the Smith government in 1980. And uh, by the time I arrived at the age of eight, uh, it was 1988. Quite a few good years uh, of establishing yourself as an independent country. The education system was so fantastic, uh, and uh, it was just a Great place to be a kid. I loved it. Right,
0: okay. But?
1: Well, <laughs> yeah, leaving leaving was difficult. I think this, I, I tend to trace my some of my interest in Bitcoin to, to, to two things that I think came out of Zimbabwe, and one being inflation and the other being capital controls. And just to dig into those a bit, obviously everyone knows that Zimbabwe is kind of the poster child for how not to do inflation um not a good list to be at the top of um but it you you will always see it cited as one of the worst cases i think it still is one of the worst in case of hyperinflation ever possibly even worse than the weimar republic um so again a lot a lot of the problems there trace back to i think to um the the liberation war so there were there Huge, huge problem with Zimbabwe was most of the fertile and most of the fertile land had been taken away from the indigenous population and, and given to, to white settlers. And so there was quite understandably a program to effectively distribute the land more fairly. And unfortunately, that didn't go quite as well as it might have done. A lot of the farms ended up being um, fallow uh, and or given to Mugabe's um, connections. Uh, I've always felt that if that land distribution had been done better, then a lot of the problems in Zim wouldn't have arisen, You know, because it's a rich country with a well-educated population. And apart from the liberation struggle, relatively peaceful. Um, like I say, it was a lovely place to, to be and to grow up. Anyway, um, the inflation problem was beginning to get worse and worse in the early to mid 90s. Um, and I think when when we arrived in Zim, it was the Zim dollar was about seven to one with a pound, and when we left, it was multiple hundreds. I think.
2: Ah, hmm.
1: uh, so inflation was running. I from memory, about fifty to sixty percent when we left, which is pretty damn bad. That's that's on the level of Turkey at the moment.
0: Do you remember your your, and, f- your mother and father talking about it? Ah, uh, like discussing it. I mean, were they being paid in Zim dollars or were they being paid in pounds? Like. Do you remember discussions at the the dinner table that kind of just like
1: etched their uh you know burning. that's a memory? really good really good question yeah because when we first went out there my dad was still with the British Council getting paid in a sterling and then when he retired he took a, he took a teaching job at, at my school actually uh, and was being paid in some dollars and I think that was a real realization that uh, you know we were being paid in soft currency which was evaporating so obviously at the end at the uh start of the month your your paycheck was worth a lot more than it was worth at the end um and we were quite hard up for quite a long time from from 89 89 onwards um yeah, so i think that was that's really where the melting ice cube idea first probably wormed its way in um and then Secondly, trying to get your money out of the country, I, th- I think an underappreciated aspect of countries with collapsing currencies is that trying to move money across borders is extraordinarily hard. Um, and it's, I think it's worth delving into that idea a little bit. So, you know, we, we all know that, we've we probably all heard being in, in the work that we we are in, You know, America is able to export its inflation. But it's interesting to understand what that actually means. And... Very simply, it, it is the concept that I, there's a huge demand for American dollars everywhere in the world. Mm-hmm. And because it's the reserve currency and oil trade that's settled in, in US dollars, and most countries will keep a US dollar reserve. So, lots of people, in, bluntly, lots of people in the, in the world want US dollars. Mm-hmm. And the fact that there's a huge demand for that product, the US dollar, means that inflation of the, you, you know, certainly domestic inflation in the U S is, is able to save relatively low because it's less affected by the increase in the money supply because of the huge demand for that money. So the, the same, unfortunately is not the case for the Zimbabwe dollar. The, the list of people who want the Zimbabwe dollar is relatively short. And, and it probably doesn't even include people who are still in Zimbabwe. Um, so if you are being paid in Zimbabwe dollars and then you want to leave, you're faced with quite a knotty problem. And, uh, you know, I know you've you've heard this story as well, but in case there are any listeners uh, who haven't, uh, the way we did it when we left um was we we sold our house in Zim very quickly. You take your Zim dollars because you know they're evaporating at 50% a year at that time. Um and then we bought a we bought a Rolls-Royce um and then drove it out. Uh, it was you know quite a comfortable way to travel in your you know, sort of mobile bank.
0: Beautiful. And what what was the roller? Do you remember? It was a
1: 1976 uh, Rolls Royce Silver Shadow. Um, I've got a picture. Actually, yeah, I have got a picture here. Uh, yeah. So my mum wrote an article about a fiddle. Hang on, I've got my. Uh, you got your blurrer. Yeah, I can send you. I can send you a picture afterwards if you want to. Sure. So 1976
0: on. Silver Shadow, and and the idea being this was. Not just a, a mode of transport, but also a store of value. was the idea to get it yeah. to the UK and then sell it
1: for pounds once you arrived? Exactly right. Yeah. Huh. So it's a legit it's a <laughs> no.
0: You're out with a bang, <laughs> because, That's beautiful.
1: Well, exactly. You can the thing is you can't really cross the border with, you know, five kilos of gold. Not not that we would have had that, but hmm. um, and then you can't can't use cash because no one wants some dollars outside the country. Um and I'd heard of people, some people doing it with diamonds, but again, if you get caught at the border with the yeah. diamonds, something, someone will confiscate them, and then where's your recourse? What are you going to do?
0: That's a great plan because clearly, 1976 silver shadows are desirable in the UK in the 90s. Well, even today.
1: Yeah. Yeah. It was, I mean, it was quite desirable even to my dad. I, I noticed that it took him quite a long time actually to sell it once we got back to <laughs> the UK. <So, laughs> uh, you know, but the, 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 <laughs> we, we, we needed the money, unfortunately. Yeah. Uh, but no, no, it was a beautiful car. And actually, I did look up its its number plate. It's still knocking, knocking around somewhere. No uh, way. Yeah, I think it's, uh, yeah, yeah, I think it's in Scotland. I'd love to track down who owns it now. Um, oh, mate. Well, when
0: moon you can go track it down and get it back that would be an amazing story
1: <laughs> that would be hilarious wouldn't it
0: that that's the full circle isn't it you you buy it back with with sound money uh, that was the and that was the way that you escaped hyperinflation that's yeah. that's great so but that journey must have explain that journey like how do you drive out of Zimbabwe, which, what route do you take? Where, where did you go? What an adventure!
1: Oh, so I seriously, if you're ever looking for a long drive to do, it was absolutely magnificent. <laughs> um, so the the, the geog- just the, so the geography of Zimbabwe, the, the, there's a very high there's a high belt and the low belt, and Harari is up in the high belt, so that's about um, three thousand meters above sea level. Uh, so the climate's lovely and clear and crisp not too hot in the summer not too cold in the winter um and then there's a huge geological structure running down the spine of the country which is called the great Dyke. and then you you kind of go over that and come down into the lowlands of the south if you've read your kipling you'll remember the how the elephant got its trunk the great great green greasy limpopo So the limpopo river is the southern border of zimbabwe um and you drive across there from a town called bike on the way down we visited great zimbabwe which are these massive stone ruins um, no one knows who built them. We think an African civilization from six or seven hundred years ago. Um, total mystery. Absolutely beautiful. Um, well worth seeing uh, if you're if you're on the drive. Um, and then we t- we did about two hundred miles a day, so we took our time going through the S- South Africa. We wanted to see as much of the country as we could. Um, I, I, we drove through the Drakensberg Mountains, which were you know, ut- utterly wonderful um into KwaZulu Natal saw various different battlefields from the, the the Zulu war you may you may remember Michael Caine's Zulu mm. so we visited Isandlwana and Rorke's Drift um and then saw some of the Boer battlefields as well uh, Shpionkop, uh site of a very famous quite a humiliating defeat of the British army uh, Shpionkop is a is a hill with kind of a bowl structure at the top and the Boers basically pinned the uh, British army into the middle and then shot them like fish, fish in a tank um, and then um did a drink to Bloemfontein um, oddly enough my great grandmother had been born in South Africa uh, her father was a, a copper miner and we visited Barberton um, which also features in the film Power of One if you've ever seen that movie uh, and we found her birth certificate in the library there Um, my mum was oh. very pleased about that uh, and then jink down towards the coast, down towards um, the, it's called the Garden. So we did the battlefields route first, and then the Garden route takes you further down down the coast uh, past a beautiful town called George, and then and eventually ended up in Cape Town, mm-hmm. which what, is uh, another wonderful place.
0: The thing that's crossing my mind now is like that those cars aren't made for for off road mountainous kind of driving. They're they're made more for the. Uh, the Grand Touring, you know, what was the infrastructure like?
1: How it, what was then pretty good, yeah, actually, yeah, wow. So pretty decent roads. Um, I mean, the power of the thing's ridiculous. I mean, it right. had a seven-liter engine. Yeah, <laughs> so uh, I think the the, the end the engine is slightly smaller than the modern ones, but this thing weighed it weighed two point two tons and had a seven-liter engine. Wow, and it still accelerated north to sixty in about five seconds. It was ridiculous. Bloody hell! Um, yeah, yeah. you could fly a plane. Of those things, that's outrageous. How much fuel were you using? Oh, that's awful. I think it's like yeah. fifty miles per gallon. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> it's, it's one of the reasons we drove so slowly just plug your route between the. It's like having an electric car nowadays. You need to make yeah. sure that you you know you can get to the next charging point.
0: All right, so you get um, all the way down to uh, to Cape Town. You, you still got to get to the UK. Like that. That's what. What? How do you do that now?
1: We had booked a berth on a ship called the S.A. Sederberg, and um, it was mainly a container ship, uh, so shipping between Cape Town and Zeebrugge and then Tilbury in the U.K. Mm-hmm. Uh, there were 12 passenger passenger berths as well, though, and uh, we t- we took uh, half of them uh, for us a lot. Uh, there were four, four kids by this time, my mum and my dad. And, uh, yeah, we put the car into one container and then us onto into the berths and then it was a two-week voyage roughly from Cape Town all the way up the coast of Africa, uh Holland first, and then and then Tilbury. And then arriving in Tilbury, the weirdest thing ever, no one stamped our passports. There's no record of us coming back into the country. It's so weird. They, I remember they craned the car off, cracked the container open, said our goodbyes to the um the crew of the boat, hopped into the car and then just disappeared. <laughs>
0: Um, (laughs) welcome to essex yeah yeah exactly mate. that's amazing all right so what were you doing on the ship for two weeks these things aren't kitted out like it's not like a swimming pool and uh, a bar and a cocktail lounge and it must have been fun for you at what age are you
1: uh i'm 16 at this point all right Um... It was it was pretty fun actually. So it was like like you're completely right, it wasn't? It's not a cruise ship. It was very rough and ready. Um, there was a a gym that was used by the crew, which we were allowed to use, and a you know, ping pong table. Played a lot of ping pong. Uh, and there was a VHS library, so we watched watched a bunch of movies and uh, Jigsaw's and looking after the kids. My brother was only five, and my little sister seven at the time. So you know, quite a lot of you know, just playing and keeping the kids entertained. Um, fun experience though. I I I don't remember being bored. It was good, mate.
0: That's an incredible story. All right, okay. So then, uh, you obviously you've got to find yourself uh, a career path, right? Uh, so where were you drawn to? Yeah. So I um I did classics
1: at Cambridge, um, and then obviously that doesn't leave you with many um, wide open job. So you, you tend to need to retrain. Um, so I mentioned when Lauren was was with us, my first job was um, was, was lobbying. Uh, I wanted to do something involving classics. You know, I know, I really loved the subject. I loved ancient Greece and, and Rome. Um, and I spent two years trying to broker a deal around the time of the Athens Olympics um, to send the, the Parthenon marbles or the Elgin marbles over to Athens for the Games in exchange for an exhibition that they would uh, they would send over here. Mm-hmm. um, so funny, it's back in the news now. no no progress seems to have been made.
0: <laughs> yeah, exactly. So for those that aren't aware, basically that they're at the the British Museum, if I'm not mistaken, uh, right. Greece want them back and a British museum saying no way, uh, there's a big spat about it.
1: yeah, yeah, exactly. um, so they've been in in the UK for quite a long time. they would they were taken off the Parthenon temple in Athens um over two hundred years ago originally for Lord Elgin's house, but he ran out of money and then sold them to the British Museum. And the way that the British Museum's um, constitution is is constructed is is such that it, it legally cannot dispose of any of its collection permanently. So that's written into the British Museum Act. So in order for the British Museum to give something away, you need primary legislation to, to be changed. But they can loan stuff, which is the avenue that we were exploring 20 years ago and seems to be what People are re exploring now. Um everyone kind of forgot about the Elgin marbles for a while because we had various other problems like um the war on terror and um the great financial crisis. Um so it's funny that things have now come full circle. Yeah, crazy.
0: All right, okay. So then uh, um, so you're doing that. What what uh Yeah for you... two years. Yep.
1: Um, and then I plan to go to law school after after doing that. Um, for a while, so I saved up some money in that job um, to to help fund my way through law school. Law school two years, and then then I started in the city at a big firm called Freshfields, uh, which um, some some of your listeners may have may have heard of. And you, I think you you worked in the city for a bit, didn't you as well?
0: Yeah, not for long. I was in front foreign exchange uh, before moving oh. across to to Singapore. But no, I've not heard of Freshfields. Is that a, a law company specifically?
1: Yeah. So they're, they're a very old, um, very traditional English um, company. Funnily enough, they um, have represented the Bank of England since the bank's uh, <laughs> the bank's inception. <laughs> uh, yeah, so Fresh Shields do a lot of, for anyone who's not familiar with them, they do a lot of very large um, merger and acquisition transactions. They um, will work on IPOs, on take privates. Um, I did a lot of private equity there, and I happen to be there. I'd been there for like a year and a half before the financial crisis happened, so I ended up doing a lot of uh, restructuring and insolvency work, um, which is quite interesting, and quite fun, although sometimes rather depressing as well. Yeah, and then up, so what, what I was at Freshfields about six years, and I moved to a US firm um, called Ropes, uh, and had been there was there for about six years as well before I um, I decided to. A bit of a step back i'd done now i've done 12 years in what's called private practice that's when you are you're a lawyer advising clients who want to want to buy a company or sell a company uh, or whose companies run into trouble and they need to restructure it um and i kind of had a i had a desire to go and maybe do something for smaller companies I, i've been increasingly interested in startups and in fintech and i've Took a bit of time out while my wife was starting a business to look after my two kids. Um so I was took, had about eight months off. Uh, and then I started in a fintech company called Curve. so I managed to get a job um in know in a startup uh, in fintech. So I kind of um lucked out. <laughs> and, um that, and that was that was really fun. Um and then got increasingly exposed to to pay tech and payment technology and and so on. So um and then be all of this time so
0: this must be where Bitcoin starts
1: coming across your radar. Or would that been... Well, um... interestingly enough, I actually came across Bitcoin because I think from building computers originally. Huh. Uh, so I was a bit of a, a gamer geek and I used to build my own machines. Uh, and so I initially read about it. I feel ashamed to say this now. In like 2013, um, just after the... I think that was around about when the Winklevoss twins were buying. And I, I remember reading a couple... Of articles about them, and then Docs happened. And it, was that twenty fifteen? But my dates all screwed up. Yeah, I can't remember. I, I remember the that they bought. Was it earlier? Hmm. Um, then thinking, oh god, they 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 bought they bought this Bitcoin, and then the exchange goes down, and then now they're these guys just can't can't catch a break. First they've lost Facebook, and now they've lost half of their settlement money on buying this crazy internet currency that is now worthless. Uh, ha ha ha! I'm um, for not doing that. Um, oh, spoiler alert: I am not. Uh, but and then two years later, I remember I just built a massive computer and I thought, right, I'm. So I've got all this firepower, uh, water cooled system. Uh, I'm going to start mining, and obviously, I didn't realize. I I knew absolutely nothing at the time. I didn't realize that you couldn't GPU mine by that point. Um. So I think I lost a lot of money on electricity bills and didn't really mine any bitcoin but it was a fun experience uh and you'll, you'll probably remember it's quite hard to even to buy bitcoin back then uh yeah. like 2015 or so um so bought a little bit had a little bit from mining did, i don't think i broke even and then i forgot about it for a couple of years um until um of so 2017 when the the Price run began again. I thought, "Oh, I'll have a look in them. I think I've got an old wallet somewhere. I'll, I'll, I'll just pick that up." This is not, sadly, not a story of me finding. Oh, I've got one hundred and fifty Bitcoin in my. <laughs> <laughs> um, probably more like one hundred and fifty pounds worth of Bitcoin. Um, but, you know, better than nothing. Uh, and then you're right. So by the time I was working in fintech, um. We were starting to put together a, a Bitcoin-based product. I wanted it to be Bitcoin. There were unfortunately some... I, can I swear now that Lauren has gone? Yeah,
0: absolutely. Yeah, that's fine. <laughs>
1: yeah, the, um, there were a bunch of, of shit coins at the company as well. Right. So the product that we built was, a it was intended to be a cash a cashback product whereby uh, customers could get cashback in uh, in Bitcoin and, you know, other coins are available. Um, and then as part of that, probably leads us on to... Um, the the policy work I started a bit more advocacy um, in my role at Curve, uh, and I was I, I wrote a couple of pieces to the FCA about um, the the treatment of trip of cryptocurrency in UK regulation, and I did a really long piece of evidence to Parliament and on focused on on Bitcoin and its distinction from from crypto in general, and that was really when I began to be aware that there was not really anyone else doing this. A lot of people with my background didn't really seem to know very much about it or were approaching it as, you know, just, I, I think one, you may, you may find this not. a lot of people who work in the city or work in finance view Bitcoin as something slightly disreputable that would, and they'd be much happier if it just went away and mm-hmm. it's not a real thing. We, should, don't, we don't need to take it seriously because you know we're we're very clever and we create structured finance and derivative products and securitizations and we don't need to bother with this weird little digital thing. And I've always felt that's that's not that's not a, the right way to think about a new thing. It's it, it, it does, if you just approach it very very matter of factly. This is a, a an open source te- it, this is an open source protocol that has these pro- the following properties. And uh, can I make money from this bluntly if you're appealing to someone in the finance industry and the answer to them will probably be well yeah there will be well if you do that but I'm sure we'll go into this in a bit more detail is, there's enormous resistance i puzzled about this a lot there's, there's enormous resistance among people from with my background and, and my training but taking it seriously which is, which is a huge aim
0: yeah yeah exactly I find exactly the same Whenever I talk to ex-colleagues about it, it's it just falls on deaf ears. They 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 don't want to know, or they might they might have taken a punt on it and they're already sold out of it. And you know, mm. it doesn't. It just. I mean, Creasus has written a, um, a piece about it, hasn't he? About the uh, the yuppie elite. Um, That's brilliant.
1: Yeah, so good. Um, I mean, if maybe put it in the show notes that, that that is a piece I return to a lot. Um, and I think he really, in that piece, hits on exactly exactly the problem that Bitcoin appeals to people who you know may have may have low trust in the system, whereas a lot of the people in the traditional financial world, yes, they have high intelligence, but they also have high trust in the system. And you need to have a combination of certain other characteristics plus low trust in the system and, and you know and the tracing matters and what i was burbling on about earlier you know I, I i lived i grew up in some of my formational experiences were either fleeing a country with what we could carry in a bag or trying to get cash out of a country that wouldn't allow us to do so and those are two quite pressing problems that bitcoin can solve and it being nice to people who work in the traditional financial industry from moment, which I, I know is difficult for, <laughs> for people at the best time, um, I do feel as though Bitcoin doesn't necessarily solve any problems for them, or at least it doesn't solve problems that it, it doesn't solve anything that they realize is a problem. So, you are a banker working in London, you are not hugely bothered by an increase in house prices. You're not enormously bothered by the cost of living. You've done very well out of the traditional system. So, being told Bitcoin solves my problems doesn't probably doesn't make very much much sense for them. So, part of the part of the work I think is working out exactly what kind of problems it does solve. And the last few years I think have been a great, great actually great advert for for one of those problems, which is the anti-inflationary nature and that was looking back into my past the first thing that really really got hold of me you know I'd grown up in a country with rampant inflation the idea of a hard cap supply is extraordinarily powerful that is something that I think can can appeal to people who are maybe holding a lot of cash and are' seeing the value of that cash disappear over time
0: it's a it's a weird one mate it's a weird one because they honestly like you'd think they for, from my background you'd think they'd be the first people to grab it to grasp it because they're traders or brokers and it's just another tradable asset and in fact it's a tradable asset that you couldn't start trading or investing in before wall street even arrived but then that i think that's another barrier for them because that it doesn't have the legitimacy of the system in which they are entrenched that's probably that in fact that's what stopped me when i first learned about it really when i was i remember sitting at my desk thinking what a bunch of nonsense this is like this is internet geek (laughs) what are they doing what are they thinking there's no no way in the world this is ever going to be a tradable currency against the dollar or against the yen or against the euro or against the british pound and how wrong could i have been very and you know how how long did it take me to start picking up the books and actually delving into it too many years uh like so many of us uh but here we are and so here we are and here you are today. So you've come to the realization that there is a huge disconnect between your knowledge and your integrity versus your colleagues and the industry at large and the the, the regulators. You mentioned the FCA. Could you just explain what that is? So, you know, for the global listeners that.
1: Of course. So the FCA is the UK's financial regulator. So their their remit is to uh, help preserve, preserve financial uh, stability and to ensure that regulated firms like banks and insurance companies act properly, and also to protect customers, uh, retail investors, including you, you and I. Um, so they have they have quite a broad remit, um, and maybe it's worth spending a couple of minutes on on what they're doing in the UK at the moment, um, which is regrettable. <laughs> so finding our way into that so the uh, bitcoin policy uk have during the past year written quite a lot of uh, of papers to various government institutions and the fca being one of them maybe a good place to start so there were several several consultations over the last year about how to regulate cryptocurrency in in the uk and we gave a very much down the line bitcoin perspective So the FCA has unfortunately just categorized all cryptocurrencies, including Bitcoin, as restricted mass market investments. Now, a restricted mass market investment is a particular definition in uh, law and regulation. And it means that companies which sell restricted mass market investments to the public have to make sure that they're doing so safely and the people to whom they're selling know what they're buying. And if you live in the UK and you use an app like uh, like Revolut um, or you know, Uphold, you may have noticed recently that you've been having to fill in a questionnaire so, so that you can carry on uh, buying crypto. So uh, BP UK are keeping a running list of the companies that are bringing those questionnaires in. It's on Twitter, uh, on on my feed, uh, and I update it regularly as soon as I get information um, about a new uh a new exchange has just brought that in what we do is we'll you know we'll we'll put the screenshot of the questions up so you can have a look at them before you necessarily need to go into them it's very important if you are filling in these questions you get the questions right um if you don't you may be prevented from from buying bitcoin um for a short period until you retake the questionnaire what i don't know yet is how many times you can take the questionnaire and get the questions wrong Hmm. so again because bitcoin is categorized as a restricted market investment if you're not a high net worth investor, you shouldn't allocate more than 10% of your net assets towards a restricted mass market investment. We we came out of the gate and, and said this is a completely stupid categorization, I uh, went into quite some detail about why it was wrong. I think it could be applicable to a bunch of other cryptos where where you have a founding team and a white paper that's you know is written by by that founding team and they've got a foundation and a huge pre-mine. The way that we, as a policy, uh, you know, as a policy matter, are approaching that is to say that you know these other coins exist. You should think of them as venture capital-funded tech startups. Um, personally, I don't find that coming out and saying these are all shit coins is. <laughs> yeah, I, 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 I'm trying not not to sound crazy, although I have a, a certain degree of sympathy for that viewpoint. But you know, you have a VC-funded tech startup on one hand, and then you have commodity money that is not controlled by any person, country, or entity on the other, and that's Bitcoin. So our argument is very much that this is an incorrect categorization, and yes, you put all these protections in place, but it's far more likely that customer harm will increase rather than decrease because if people have all these frictions from buying from UK exchanges, they're just saying, "Oh bloody hell, I'll go, I'll go and buy from." I going buy from another country with a vpn and you can't stop me from doing that so our our argument has really been twofold firstly that the categorization is wrong and hopefully over time they 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 may consider because we're not going to stop telling them that Mm -hmm. and secondly that they're actually increasing customer harm rather than decreasing it Mm -hmm. i hope we're wrong there you know no one no one likes seeing people lose money um but to the extent that more stories emerge of that happening then we can present it as evidence And
0: penalizing uh, good actors, right? Uh, There are companies, Coin Corner spring to mind, that have been around for a long time, done great work for Bitcoiners in the space. I know now uh, Relay as well, they struggle with, uh, well, they can't. You know, UK Mm -hmm. customers literally cannot download the Relay app anymore, I I believe. Um, But, you know, this is a a very well-known Bitcoin Swiss-run company doing great work and people were happy and using their service. No problem. I think they were going via Revolut. If I remember correctly, that was the way you could do it from the UK, but now Revolut themselves. Yeah. My wife and I, we get these pings like, Oh, if you want to buy crypto, you have to answer these questions. And unfortunately Revolut have gone down the, the, the shitcoin casino Avenue. Uh, so that, that's not so great on their part. Um, And it's it's just so, so, you know, whatever people think of Brexit, right, whatever, that was years ago now, but the UK had a real good chance to set themselves up really well if they had the right regulations and if they had the right advice and if they had the right policy in place. And yes, all Bitcoiners listening, I think, I won't speak for you, but- any policies are bad policies. Generally, when you're talking about Bitcoin, because we want free open source money and you know all the all of the good ethical things that come with Bitcoin and commodity money and hard money, Uh but we live in such a world, uh and they've just seemed to have fucked it up, mate, for want of a better term. Yeah, <laughs> like, it's a great summary, right? <laughs> and that definitely. I, and this is where it gets murky, right? Is that intentional, or is there just a pure lack of knowledge or education, or is there a mix of the two at play?
1: Honestly, I think it's I think it's the I think it's in, not intentional. I think it's simply because people don't understand it and dismiss it and have not thought about it. So, you know, like you, I have a lot of friends still in the traditional finance industry and, you know, my, my, my day job is, I, I work in engineering companies. So you know, I I work with, with regular people every day. Uh, and my economist friends who are working in investment banks, the, closest I think they would come to, to to understanding Bitcoin is as something to gamble on because then know they are all inveterate gamblers and will will bet on anything. So the that, that that's the closest. They they do not they do not think about it, they do not understand it. They're not interested in reading about um Austrian economics or Keynesian economics. Although they studied economics at university, but you know clearly didn't take a very deep interest in it. <laughs> so um I'm 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 much more of the view that most things can be explained via cock-up rather than conspiracy. And I think the UK, unfortunately, the UK's approach to to regulation is, is very much in in in, in the cock-up uh arena rather than the conspiracy. If you just look at the the mixed messages that we're getting. So we have, we have um on the one hand it's stated government policy, they want the UK to be a crypto hub.
2: Yeah.
1: And Obviously, day one, well, you're not understanding that crypto is such a broad church and for crypto to include Bitcoin, you know, a pristine global neutral money protocol for the Internet and to include, I know, fucking Shiba Inu under the same umbrella, it, 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 it's, it's like saying that's an elephant and an amoeba. You know, so that they're both, yes, they're both animals. There's a lot of difference between those two things. It takes unfortunately it does take a bit of time to understand that, um, and actually something we were saying earlier about why people don't understand it. Uh, so I'm, I'm in my mid forties, and my generation have grown up. Uh, you know, we can remember well before the internet, and then we are the with the Napster generation. So we, everyone of my age, understands that anything digital can be copied instantly, and the cost of replication has dropped to near zero so you could get any movie you wanted any music you wanted any picture you wanted um so it's deeply ingrained in us that anything digital is is completely copyable and it's extraordinarily difficult for someone with that ingrained understanding to comprehend that bitcoin is both digital and uncopyable particularly when the code itself can easily be copied and forked. so a very common question, which I'm sure you get all the time, is you know, why doesn't someone just make another Bitcoin? So well, yeah, that's a, that's a great question. Why why can't they? They haven't. And I don't believe they ever can, for any number of reasons, which you will know better than I do. But it takes a little while to understand if you're if you work for you know, Goldman Sachs and you're saying, well, you know, just just make another one. It's not scarce. The network effects are unreplicable the Immaculate Conception is unreplicable. The fact that it had no value for two years and people were simply buying Bitcoin with their electricity, then it's slowly monetized over time without any marketing, without any advertising budget, simply because people voluntarily adopted it. Those are all unreplicable. It takes a bit of time to understand that. yeah i I find that again I'm aware of i'm I'm, try, I'm trying to trying to be sympathetic to to people who hate Bitcoin here but I, yeah. I feel that very much our mission is to try and find bring bring people in to into the tent rather than exclude them from it
0: so when you speak to the the regulators and when you send these letters off do you do you get uh what's the kind of feedback that you get back from like the attempt to engage or educate and how how much success would you say you know you've had so far either personally or as the uh as the institute
1: so it's slow work um and the crypto lobby is much better funded than we are unfortunately hmm. um so we've good relations with the uh, the APPG well yeah exactly <laughs> <laughs> it's a vc funded crypto again yeah exactly um, but we so for, for your for your overseas listeners, um, within within Parliament in the UK, you often have what are called all party parliamentary groups, and those are small groups of MPs from, as the name suggests, all all parties. So they're non partisan, uh, and they will often coalesce around certain different interests. Um, and there are there are two that that we've been reaching out to in particular. Uh, one's the APPG for cryptocurrency in general, and the other is uh, APPG uh not another dirty word bigger warning uh, for blockchain um so we've been reaching out to um two two different mps and we've got very good relations with um with lisa cameron who uh, is the chair of the uh, the crypto with appg and i've been beginning to reach out to uh, Natalie nathalie who is um the mp who chairs uh, the the blockchain one um and again a lot of a lot of our work is they've jumped on. So you have two bandwagons there that various people jump on: one crypto, one blockchain. Um, personally, I really like Safe's little diagram from um, the Bitcoin standard, You know whether or not you, it's a it's a flowchart for working. On whether you need blockchain is, it's a are you trying to create uncensorable internet money? Do you need blockchain? differently? So we can. Inform and educate people that um, blockchains are inefficient databases that are not good for doing many things. Uh, um, we'll, we'll be ha- will be happy. And again, I, actually, that leads me on to another interesting idea, which is that there is something about the nature of Bitcoin which makes it very hard to sell to someone who is very interested in preserving the strength and independence of their national currency. So again, I don't think a good opening gambit is to say, "Hello, we're." Um are talking about Bitcoin, we'd like to separate money and state, please. <laughs> um, <laughs> um, that's, that's not going to be met with huge enthusiasm. The more interesting avenue to explore, I think, is as a reserve asset, which is completely uncensorable. it's gold that can travel at the speed of light the extent that the Bank of England has gold reserves, it's an interesting idea, I think, to explore that it might also want to have digital gold reserves. But that obviously is uh, appealing to quite an old concept of Bitcoin as digital gold. It doesn't doesn't necessarily appeal to its payments, um, its its payment capabilities. But I mean, as you all know, you you know, if, if you're living in if you're living in the in the world of West, then bluntly, you don't have a huge amount of payment friction. The NFC tap for you as a consumer is not a huge problem that Bitcoin needs to solve. Um, bluntly, I like paying in Bitcoin when I can, and the Lightning Network is absolutely incredible, as you know. Um, but paying a point of sale, is there's not a huge amount of friction for you. Another interesting thing to explore, though, is that uh, running point of sale and paying Visa and Mastercard and Amex fees is quite expensive for merchants. So in the West, I think the exploring merchant relationships rather than necessarily retail relationships are also rather useful and this is what the bridge to bitcoin guys in the uk do so so fantastically well um again for for any of your listeners who don't know when you tap your visa card you have the card issuer and then you have your correspondent bank so if you're using and let's say you're using a visa card that's um connects to your barclays bank account when You tap point of sale, there are messages sent from the point of sale to the merchant acquirer, and the merchant acquirer goes to the card issuer. The card issuer goes to the bank, says, You know, does Daniel have 10 pounds in his bank account? And then the bank says, Yeah, he does. And then those messages get sent back. The point of sale transaction completes, but actual settlement doesn't take place for quite some ability between the, the merchant seller and, and your. Daniel, your your, your barley's bank, which is often settled not for two or three days after that initial transaction has happened. Um and at each step fees need to be paid, and those fees are largely paid by the merchants. So if you go to a merchant and say, Well, you know, I can I can give you a peer-to-peer transaction that just involves Daniel and you, and you can pay for this exactly the same, you can sell them sell them the 10 pound item for exactly the same price, but you get to keep a hundred percent of that, you know, less a tiny one or two sat fee, or you can spend. All right. Okay. So
0: we're back. We just had a little dropout. Um, but I'd asked you the question about, um, when, when you have these uh, discussions, uh, where's your mind leading? Is it, you know, are are we trying to stop regulation, roll back regulation, uh, Advocate for them to put it on a balance sheet in the, um, at the, you know, the government level. What what's the kind of, where do you when you have these discussions? Where do you find yourself, kind of uh, being led?
1: So I think one wedge issue is always approaching regulation with the idea of wanting to prevent customer harm. So that's something that we can both agree on. No, Bitcoiner wants customers to suffer harm and you no know, regulator wants people to suffer harm as well. So if we can agree on that issue, then part of our job is explaining how some of the decisions they've taken may actually increase the risk of customer harm. And so we mentioned earlier some of the increased friction that we're, sh- we're seeing from you know great UK exchanges like, like Coin Corner, who've done a bang-up job over the last few years uh, in the Bitcoin space. Uh, if they are losing customers to less... Um, well-intentioned actors, then that may increase the risk of customer harm. At the same time, as you mentioned previously, the, the actions of regulators are negatively affecting the prospects of UK businesses. So that's also quite a powerful argument. It's not yeah. necessarily to listened to immediately, but we need to keep making it. So that, that's, that's one. Um, the Integration of Bitcoin mining in the energy sector is, I also think, a really underappreciated. The extent to which Bitcoin is, as an as a mining industry, is is underutilized in the UK is astonishing. There's very very little mining in the UK. We have some great examples of companies like Skilling Mining or Chain Energy, who are actually doing really interesting things with biogas, and that opens up more doors, I think. And again, it's just some of the collagens are completely unaware of the idea that you could plonk a bitcoin miner on a landfill and use that wasted methane which is currently being vented or flared to power you know something which is then able to generate balance sheet revenue is astonishing but because it's a difficult idea then obviously we, we know we need to take baby steps so we've written presentations and um pitch decks which are only with the the apbg for crypto we'll share those also with the with the blockchain team uh that that, that apbg and see i personally believe that once bitcoin is is fully integrated with the with the energy sector then i mean it's game over there's, there's there's no sense in which there could be a coordinated action to shut down it shut down those mining machines um you know and developing that idea a bit i think the The potential of the industry to provide a source to to provide recycling opportunities for wasted heat is just extraordinary. As as you know, in in the UK is a bloody cold country. Yeah, everyone needs to heat their house (laughs) and heat their water. Uh, I, if I had to put money in anything, I'd, I'd say that we're going to see a lot more companies and a lot more interest over the next few years in finding inventive ways of integrating mining and heat you might I and mean, i think the uk is ripe for that kind of in, uh, that kind of engineering exploration um unfortunately a lot of a lot of this is still theoretical in a couple of years time when we've got some startups in this in this field we can then you know we can bring politicians and regulators to on site visits and explain to them you know we've these kids are able to swim and they wouldn't have been swimming if it wasn't for bitcoin mining there's a part part of it storytelling but then you know a lot of what i write is extremely dull
0: right. <laughs> <laughs> i was gonna say that that's one thing isn't it like you you write the you write the papers you have to have specific training to to write in such a manner and to to appeal to certain people uh only those people are reading that kind of text. I would, I would imagine. I, I, it's not, it's not the what the pleb is consuming.
1: No, no, completely not. So our latest piece, for example, was a very long um, defense, effectively, of of Bitcoin mining as a sustainable industry uh, that we directed to ESMA, which is the European Securities and Markets Authority. And that's in uh, in the context of their their flagship piece of cryptocurrency legislation, uh, which is known as as mica, the market in, in crypto assets uh, regulation. Um and there that, that was pretty dense and well mm-hmm. footnoted and it takes quite a long time to read. A story about a spa being heated with mining or someone's greenhouse or a, a kid's pool saved from closure by a Bitcoin miner. Those things are much those those things get you in a way that, you know, Fifty pages of dense text, don't
0: right? <laughs> and so, do they? Do they actually read this stuff? I mean, uh, that's one because, <laughs> yeah, I mean, you never know, right? Yeah, I'd, I'd like to think that they do.
1: Um, so, j- joking aside, part of what we need, part of what we're doing, is getting a lot of material on the record. Like I said at the beginning mm. of the call, when I when I did my first piece of evidence to Parliament, it became very clear that no one else was doing this.
2: Mm
1: -hmm. um and no one else was was getting stuff on the record so the the stuff on the record was effectively regurgitation of guardian articles about how bitcoin mining is going to burn the planet right and stuff from well-funded entities uh you know naming no names who would come out saying bitcoin is bad for the environment you should use our coin because it's better because it's for these reasons um and you know, I, I should talk a little bit about some of the other the other team members and their works. Obviously, you're you're an advisor, uh, which is great. And thank thank you for everything you do. Um, Susie heads up the mining and and sustainability team, and a lot of her work is around um, doing a huge amount of research into items so matters such as why is there no Bitcoin mining in the UK? What are the roadblocks? How can we unlock this as a, as an industry for the UK? Um, and a Comprehensive piece of what we'd like to do is really exploring that, and then then we can we we can explain what the roadblocks are, whether those are planning or regulatory or other, and talk about the potential of you know, of the UK as a sustainable mining hub, which it could be given the amount of wind that we have, um, and other sources of power that will be will be coming online. Um, as as solar rolls out in the UK, and you know we have you know, wind, and obviously wind is is huge. Tidal power is another potential. Um, you know, there's an untapped industry here which we could be you know, we could be a significant part of. And the moment the, you just need one or two of these things to click with people, uh, and then once they once they understand these points, then they become an advocate rather than an opponent. Mm-hmm.
0: 2024, mate, that's the year. That's the year you <laughs> reach someone and they're going to get it and they're going to stay and they're going to stand up and they're going to say, no, we need to look at this more seriously. And this is the team. This is, These are the guys that are helping us and advising us. And this is the way that we bring more jobs and more interest to, to the United Kingdom, right? And mining specifically, how many jobs could that bring? Like, Just huge opportunities for, for people. Uh, and a, an MP should be very interested in, in that slant alone, right? You know, how do I oh, bring yeah. jobs to my constituency, to my jurisdiction, to my area, to my town, to my city, whatever? Uh, because that is it's one of the remits of their job.
1: Exactly. You know, they're supposed to act in the best interest of their constituents. Um, and you know, what, what Peter's doing in Bedford is, it's, it's fascinating. He's, he's demonstrating that this can be incidental to, you know, a football team success or opening a bar and you know, that kind of thing. Um, and that actually takes us onto a, to a more interesting point, which is you know, very often I, I kind of imagine a world where we don't need to talk about Bitcoin anymore because it's just there in the background it's heating our homes and it's warming our water and it's growing our food and greenhouses it's balancing the sustainable grid it is running our payment systems and none of us need to talk about it and we can go off and do other things with our lives it i can't think of another single set or protocol that can can do all of those things it, and the more you think about it, the more, the more your mind is blown, right? Yeah, it's, it's just extraordinary.
0: Yeah, I mean, I yeah, I. What would we do then, Freddie, if we didn't have that to talk about every day and think <laughs> about it? Like,
1: yeah. I'd, I'd work out a lot more, and I'd, I'd become genuinely massive. <laughs>
0: <laughs> <laughs> all right, mate. Well, I think um, was there anything else you wanted to to cover on the uh, Bitcoin Policy Institute or anything else there at all?
1: Um, I'm glad you brought up the uh, the Creases article because that, that was running in the back of my mind. And I I recommend that if your listeners haven't read that, they really, really do dig it up. That that's that's a really interesting piece to try and uh, to, you know, to to try and understand why some people in the traditional world struggle to get it. And I think it, it takes a really fair look at it, and it's not rude about people, and it, you know, it's, a nice, it's a nice balance balance viewpoint. Um, maybe just. Blowing our intro for a second, we we are sort of raising two small visa funds um, campaigns. One one is to try and, and purchase books for for MPs. We we've, we've already given uh, given a book to Clive Lewis that was handed over by by Russell, uh, who's one of our team. Um, we are preparing for a potential change of government, so we we're we're looking at we're looking to target book donations um, bluntly on 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 a rough calculation of whether or not. People are likely to keep their seats in the next election. If we have a Labor government, obviously, will obviously, need to adjust our messaging. You know what, what we just said around mining sustainability and recycling waste heat. That should appeal down the lines with Labor government. So we'll, we'll be adjusting our work over the next year depending on political changes. Uh, I I you know we we'd love uh, love your listeners to follow us on uh, on Twitter. Um, we're at Bitcoin Policy UK, and I'm just at Freddie New. Uh, and also, I should have said at the beginning, but I've been listening to your pod for ages, so this is a real pleasure actually to have a, have a conversation with you on it. So thank you so much for the invite.
0: No problem. Thanks for coming on. And I think there was a, as well, we should touch on, um, there's a push on the education as well through the Bitcoin Policy Institute, working with, Teachers, existing teachers in the system, teachers outside of the system, and I think they're working with me, Prima. Uh, to there is
1: exactly so Matt has just come on board to spearhead uh, the and you know, his details are on the website as well. Um, he's just come on board. Uh, he is going to be spearheading the the educational side of things. So Matt's uh, Matt's a teacher himself, and he is going to be working with uh, me, Premier Bitcoin, uh, to try and effectively educate the next generation of Bitcoiners. Obviously, you, you've done a great job with the, those who live in your house. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> orange, billion, them. But the, the idea there is really twofold to focus both on on kids who are still in school and then also a university and careers pipeline as well. So to the extent that we in the UK can begin to exploit uh, Bitcoin, whether whether mining or payments or other as, uh, as career opportunities, hopefully we'll see people who... Have been able to have been have got exposure to the premier bitcoin um initiative and then uh, onwards through university are able to um and to the extent that we can facilitate these we would to have conversations with bitcoin companies in the uk and then have a you
2: know
1: a rewarding and fulfilling career doing something interesting that straddles a lot of different disciplines
0: yeah that's amazing excellent initiative and uh i remember talking to the guys about it and they were even. Uh, looking at the chance of getting accreditation as well, so there's there's a lot of work going on behind the scenes, which uh, perhaps the plebs, uh, well, it's hard to appreciate if they don't know it's going on, right? So that's the whole point of having <laughs> this conversation. So it's uh, it is Excuse happening. Me. There, you know, we we do have people like yourself in the trenches at that level, trying to reach those people um, that are. Making bad decisions at the moment, and hopefully can be turned. And now, what is the conversation around a CBDC uh, at that level? Uh, how down <laughs> the rabbit hole are they when it comes to that?
1: Uh, I should have remembered to mention this because uh, I had actually jotted down that I this that that was, I think was the one thing we haven't we haven't spoken about that I wanted to wanted to bring up. So great shout. Um, I think I'd give a call out to Big Brother Watch, who are doing a fantastic job of pushing back against uh, CBDC. Um, so uh, I went along to the launch of their uh, CBDC report in Parliament. Uh, it's a great report. If you listeners haven't read it, I encourage you to go to the website and, and dig that up. Um, they have a great team of people very, very focused on civil liberties um, and you know financial autonomy and independence pushing back against the surveillance state. Um, I'm relatively optimistic that we will be able to push back against the CBDC. There is obviously a huge push from both companies and central banks and the the Bank of International Settlements as well to creating one. But I think it's one of those things that the more people learn about it, the less they like it. And... My hunch is that it's going to be so unpopular already by the time they try and create it that no party is going to want to expend a huge amount of political capital putting into place something which is enormously unpopular and which will likely fail if it is put in place. The data we have so far shows that everywhere CBDC has been tried, people hate them and people don't use them. So the the messaging for me to government is one of of self-interest. You know, why spend all this time, money and effort on creating something which everyone will hate and no one will use? And then a politician will say, hmm, well, do I really want to do that and burn all of my political capital? Maybe I'll uh, maybe I'll make sure that, you know, we don't use rebar concrete in schools anymore or something like that. So I think the risks are very, very apparent. And it's very clear that the architects and authors of CBDCs want to have total control over all of your spending and to understand everything you spend your money on, to have the ability to stop you from spending it if you if they decide so. That is not a world that I want to live in, and I don't think it's a world many people want to live in. So for me, the key thing is people like you asking exactly that question and then getting the message about how dangerous these things are as widely as possible. Because we rely on people. You know, I fundamentally believe people are people are decent, and people in general are good to each other. And people don't by and large, don't want to live in that kind of world. And the more people, more the more we educate people around what a CBDC is and what its risks are, the less they're going to like them. So, for me, I, I, I fundamentally you know play, place my faith in in people's ability to make good decisions. As I, I think most people do.
0: I'm with you. A uh, uh, faith in humanity is a must, and we, uh, you know, we would we'd be in a really bad place if we didn't have that. Uh, people, um, it's education, right? It all comes back down to that. And when when you see the. Uh, what we're up against, though, Freddie, like what what happened in 2020, 21, 22, when we had the herd mentality kick in because the people were watching the the silver screen in their in their houses, which they were voluntarily locking themselves inside of and just following the science and all of this kind of stuff. You can see that they will follow, but they're following ill advice. If we can get the good advice out there, and this is what all of the Bitcoin education is about. And this is why I uh, I urge all of the plebs to start a meetup in your local town, village, hamlet, city, wherever it is that you live. And 2024 has to be the year of the meetup push or getting to a conference or starting some kind of project or starting a podcast, starting a YouTube video, starting whatever, right? Because we have to, it's down to us. Like no one, like the BBC aren't going to all of a sudden start propagandizing people with Bitcoin. (laughs) We have to do that.
1: You're right. 100% right. I mean, God, I hadn't met a real Bitcoiner in face-to-face for five years after I first learned about it. Right, I'm so pleased as I now have. Uh, It's one of the only things that you can be interested in, where you can meet people with completely different backgrounds, completely different political views, and yet somehow you'll share a vision of the world and of people and human nature just you know in a world that it that we now live in which is so polarized and angry about everything it's fantastic to to meet up with people and find that you share so many viewpoints, even if you can continue disagreeing about almost everything else it's lovely
0: yeah and that disagreement that that's not like a shouting screaming match right it's a conversation and actually sitting down and listening to somebody's point of view objectively and then going home thinking about it deeper and perhaps waking up in the next the next morning with a different point of view with like huh right i would never have got to that point if i had not have listened to what that person was telling me in a bar last night and like yeah. it's so mind expanding and so intellectually stimulating and rewarding that you cannot you can't stop. That's why we get addicted to it. That's why we get like, you know, all giddy the fact that there's a meetup coming up yeah. or a conference <laughs> or something. And we know that we're going to go and get to hang and have the most incredible conversations, conversations that you never thought you'd ever be a part to in your life.
1: You're right. It, you know, it's, it's funny. We you know, I've I worked obviously with, with a policy team, but I, I'm increasingly, I increasingly feel almost post-political. It's, I'm sure this is a common experience across the world, that the political parties which are on offer aren't, don't necessarily appeal in many ways to to you any longer. Uh, they're either so similar or, or or so different from each other, that, and they don't really appeal in many ways to a lot of the issues that people are actually worried about and are concerned about. And as we know, so so many of those stem down to the fact that money can be too easily created and given to the wrong people, and then understanding that is, is quite fundamental to digging into what is fundamentally wrong with 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 so much of our our societies. But again, if if you're one of the people who is close to the the money spigot, you don't necessarily um, you're not very incentivized to change things, are you?
0: No. And when you when you watch any debate or anything like that in the house of commons uh it's just ridiculous it's like no one's listening to each other you're all booing and clapping and you've got a sentence each and you're firing volleys across the the floor like this is not uh, how a civilization should be you know managed
1: no, it's just, it's disgusting. I mean, if, if if anyone has listening has never watched a parliamentary debate or prime minister's questions, I, I encourage you to di- to dig it up and, and have a look so, so you can see what Daniel is talking about. But it is an absolute disgrace. Can you imagine sitting in a business meeting and interrupting people when and then standing up and yelling and waving pieces of paper at each other? It's just, I mean, you said clown world earlier. That they, they literally look like clowns. So these are the people who are, or making laws that we are then supposed to follow it's utterly ludicrous mm-hmm. and you know no sensible company would be running the way that that parliament is run it's an absolute disgrace
0: it truly is mate all right okay well final question if you had one last orange pill left to give to somebody who would you give it to and why
1: Sure, someone has said this on the show before, but I'm gonna have to go with them um, with Martin Lewis uh again. <laughs> um <laughs> uh, sorry if someone has said Martin Lewis before. I, I have a feeling they might have done. Um for those who don't know who Martin Lewis is, he is a uh he's he's a sort of financial campaigner, I suppose, is the best way to describe him in, in the UK. He started off with a website uh, called Money Saving Expert and his entire uh shtick behind the website was to create um ways ways for ordinary people to save as much money as they could and to understand how they could find goods bank accounts or investment products or insurance products and so on and he's gone on to become more of a public face since he founded that website and he's very focused on making sure that people get the most out of their money and understand what their money can do for them and if we could get him, I think, to understand that there's a better form of money than Sterling, why it's so good, uh, I think that would be that would be a fantastic orange pill. The the problem is that obviously Lewis is being so focused on on preservation. Uh, while we still live in a world where there are wild blow-off tops and then 80% drawdowns, I can understand why it's hard for him to recommend something like that. But at the same time, you know, and I know we're still living through watching Bitcoin monetize in real time. And my hunch is that over time the blow-off tops will become less crazy and the drawdowns will become less wild. Um and at that point, maybe it's a saving technology that that he could get on board with. But I, I think I think it's I think the inherent fairness of of Bitcoin and the the extent to which it protects the little guy and enables you to to preserve your. Your wealth in a way that nothing else has. I think all of those aspects of it would appeal to him.
0: Yeah, I've, um I've thought about him before. I've, I've even followed him on Twitter for a long time, just to see what he says about Bitcoin. And it's still kind of disparaging, unfortunately. And for, for American listeners, he's our kind of equivalent to Dave Ramsey, I would say, would probably be the best um, mm. direct parallel um, uh, comparison there. I mean, the clue is in the title martin money saving like yeah <laughs> actual money not fiat currency which is what he's expert in he's expert in fiat currency and saving i mean this is savings technology that there, there there is if you really do want to help the person on the street save like uh I, i'm not sure how he defines saving i guess he He does a lot of work around switching your credit cards or vouchers for this, vouchers for that, or shopping around for uh, remortgage deals or shopping around for um, a slightly higher interest rate. And if you open a new account here, you get 150 pounds and you get half a percent, like real, like tiny stuff, Um, which are savings in a way, but not savings that we're talking about. We're talking about generational wealth savings and that's what bitcoiners see and yeah for him to to not like allocating one percent of your monthly wage in a dollar cost average sterling cost average fashion would be his first step surely into that uh, mm-hmm. you know into that world or something like satsback you know where you can use satsback sign up create an account and anything that you buy online, you can get sats back with like, that's yeah. another way that he could start understanding Bitcoin because he loves all that kind of stuff as well. But he it's, really, you know, that that's again, it's education and call out to any of the plebs out there. If anyone's gotten in with Martin Lewis, let us know. We'd, we'd love yeah. to have <laughs> chat with him as the Bitcoin policy Institute and, and get him up to speed. Um, yeah
1: definitely i mean, I mean returning to the, maybe one of our one of our early points the the last couple of years have illustrated to people how destructive inflation is uh maybe, maybe my, my last my last point for, for the call uh you probably know by the rule of 72 um so you divide 72 by the rate of inflation and that shows you how quickly your money is destroyed and so even at a rate of 2% inflation you lose half you lose half your money in 35 years so if oh. it's any higher than 2 you are literally setting fires of cash on fire hmm. and the extent to which you can protect yourself from those inflation losses uh adds up enormously over time
0: which makes a mockery of the mandate of oh, central yeah. banks around the world, which Jeff Booth pointed out in his book, it's like you know, reframe it another way. We are mandated to steal fifty percent of your wealth over the next seventy-two years. Like, yeah, that's that's what we're here to do, guys. You know, just saying, not hiding it, and we're gonna lie about it as well and tell you it's like uh, running at five, six, seven, or eight percent at the moment because we get to pick that basket of goods each month to gaslight you into believing inflation is nowhere near. <laughs> what it truly is,
1: yeah. Change the basket. Well, you know, two two percent is a great target. Two percent is high enough to ensure that your money is worth half of what it was uh, after thirty-five after after thirty-five years have passed. But it's not quite so high that people are out in the streets demonstrating about it. Mm. So it's it's a nice nice middle ground for the central banks. Madness, mate. <laughs> that's a very good summary <laughs> yeah
0: exactly all right freddie uh great to have you on thanks uh for everything that you're doing um call to action well, with thank you webs. is is there any way that anybody can add value to you in any any way shape or form what What would be there well, the to ask
1: you're very kind i encourage everyone to look at our website it, it's Bitcoin policy uk um and sign up for our newsletter. We'll we'll send you updates about what we're doing. If you have any spare seats, you know, do um track them at the at the where Fund. We're, we will give you updates on uh which MPs are getting which books, uh, and the extent to which we're able to push ahead with our mining and sustainability initiatives. Um and yeah, just um if you follow us on Twitter, that'd be fantastic. And you know, we we appreciate you know even the odd even the odd messages just to say uh we're we're supporting you even if even if you haven't got any singles, it's, it's not nice to know that we're uh, we're pushing in the right direction and, and you to you you're
0: you're gonna be in in in, in the Surrey meetup right in in January
1: yes yeah I'll be there it's the sixteenth I think yes yeah, so I'll be there are you able to make it that one we're gonna come along
0: we're going to come on. Oh, fantastic. Yeah, looking forward That'd be to lovely. It. we should we should chill the date otherwise Chris had kill me. Uh what is it exactly? 16th of
1: January I think, isn't
0: it? 16th of January in Surrey. Uh so go find that meetup on uh, on Twitter. Uh Bridge the Bitcoin guys are putting it together and it's going to be it's going to be great fun. Really looking forward to it.
1: Fantastic. Well, mate, thank you so much for having me on. It's been a real pleasure. Lovely to speak with you.
0: No problem, mate. Thanks very much. Take care. Have a great
1: day. You too. All the best. Bye-bye. Well,
0: thank you, everybody, for listening. And, of course, thank you, Freddie, for giving up the time and coming on. Sorry about the drop in the middle there. I hope that wasn't too glitchy. Freddie was just having a few internet problems. I think he had to go and kick his kids off Netflix or something. Anyway, it was great to hang out, as always, with Bitcoiners. Like I said, we are going to be heading across to a Bitcoin meetup. And this is something everybody should be you know, looking to do in 2024. Either get to and support your local Bitcoin meetup or start one. If you do not have one in your area, start one. And the best way to do that is to find your plebs. Get across to Orange Pill App. Hit the link in the show notes. There's a sign up reference link there. You can join the app it's like three four bucks per month and you're going to be exposed to bitcoin only clubs and if you've got one living near you get in contact go have a coffee go have a beer go have a glass of wine go have a lunch or dinner whatever it is just meet. go for a walk in the park get in front of another bitcoiner it's going to change your life and between the two of you magic can happen if you start setting up a meetup and it might only be two or three of you to begin with but i guarantee you it will grow this is the way we keep spreading the message and educating as many people as we possibly can also make sure you get to a conference like i said in the beginning of the show we've got madeira coming up 1st to the 3rd of march this is going to be a big one guys You can use the code BITTON to get a 10% discount. Bring your family. It's gonna be very family focused, family friendly. There's even gonna be a family area where they've got all of the educational resources for the kids to go around and play the games and whatever else. Little side stage, just having kids up on stage, mums, wives, dads, plebs, everything. So bring your family, make it a holiday. It's a beautiful island. There's going to be huge names there. Sailor, Jack Dorsey, Jeff Booth. The, the list goes on. Just go to the website, check it out. Lynn's going to be there as well. She's going to be signing books. Uh, Alex Gladstein, Preston Pitch. There's, there's going to be all kinds of people coming across to this one. And it's, uh, it's been amazing to watch Andre and the team put this one together. Andre will be coming on soon to talk about it too. Of course, don't forget to stack your sets. You can use Swan in the U.S. Relay across Europe. Hodler Hodler global and they're kyc free wasabi wallet to up your privacy with their coin join service mempool.space to go and check out how much spam is in the mempool at the moment don't make transactions if fees are really high if you don't need to and i've got an episode coming out soon with daz we're going to talk about utxo consolidation what does that mean and should you be doing it so look out for that when that drops And please self-custody your Bitcoin. If you've not listened to my episode with Croesus, go back to a three and listen to him and I talking about the importance of self-custody and the service that he has put together. Really appreciate everybody listening to the show. Thank you so much. Look forward to seeing you at any of the meetups or the conferences coming up. Take care, stack safe, get your Bitcoin into cold storage, use the Bitbox, and I'll catch you on the next show.